0: Our scripture reading is 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 8 to 16. And I invite you to stand as we read this together. 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 to 16, and it is printed in your bulletin if you want to follow there as well. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David Thus saith the Lord of hosts. as far you may be seated.
1: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we believe what you have said. I pray that you'd find us in a place of faith this morning, believing that this is your word, that this is part of what you have inspired by your Holy Spirit, that it is profitable for us, that we need it, that we need you. And Lord, we also understand that we can't understand and we can't live by your word apart from the help of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask for that help right now. I pray that you would help each person in this room to see your glory and your word this morning. Father, please be with us. We need you now. Amen. Before we get into the message this morning, um, this is a sort of an announcement, but I wanted to just let you know about something. Some of you may have seen this already this week, if you have visited our church website, There There's a new feature or a new kind of section on the website that we launched this week, uh, and it's, it's a, a pastor's blog. And if you go read it, don't do it now. Um, but if you do it later, you'll see there's there's a post, the most recent post that kind of explains what it's all about. But essentially, let me kind of sum it up for you. Pastor's blog is going to be a place on the website for me to put stuff that doesn't fit into the sermon on Sunday morning, because it happens pretty regularly. Where and to, to this today was an example, right? Where I kind of wrote out the sermon, and and there's a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't fit or else we'd be here till two o'clock and you know that'd be great but maybe not so much and so um there's there's always a trimming process and yet many times as as these these things get removed i think man that, that still is really good and really helpful and so Um, and so that's what kind of what the, this part of the website is going to be for a place to just put stuff like that, that will be an extension of what we do here together on, on Sunday mornings. And so if you go check it out, you'll see there's a few posts that are up there already because I've been sort of doing this behind the scenes for a few weeks as the board and I have been evaluating if this is a good idea or not. And, um, don't expect something every week. I'm not going to, it's not that kind of a thing. It's just as there's material, it will go there. But what you can do, if you go check it out, you can scroll down to the bottom of the page and put in your email address. And then anytime that something does get posted, you just get notified and they'll get an email address. So this week there's one, probably two um, posts that will go up there that are going to be connected to the sermon on Sunday and kind of keep, keep some of those things going. So we wanted you to know about that and know that, that you can can check that out. And there's a little thing there, but anything you read there, anything beyond that, I'll just open it up to any anything that happens around here that, that you hear us say or teach or talk about or during the sermons on Sunday morning, uh, things that give you questions or things you want to talk about, please do that. Send me an email, send me a text. My contact info is there in the bulletin. And, and I like nothing, or I like few things better than... Uh, than to have someone say, hey, what, what you said made me think about this, and and let's can we talk about that? So please feel free to, to do that anytime. Now we'll begin the message this morning. For the past few weeks of this series, we've been walking through the covenants that God made with his people in, in what we call the Old Testament. And we're coming to the end of this first section of our series, right? We have actually just one more week in in, in this first kind of third of, of our big series called You Are Here, finding our place in the biggest story ever told. And so today we come to the fifth and final covenant that God made with his people in what we call the Old Testament, and that is God's covenant with David. But I think you know by now that before we can just jump into the story of David and consider that we have, to, we have to see where it sits in the story. And so where we're actually going to begin this morning is by picking up where we left off last week and tracing the, what, what developed from where we left off with the covenant with Israel through Moses and how that leads up to the story of David. So where we ended last week was by seeing how the, the covenant that God made with Israel, for all of its incredible blessings and terrifying curses, right God promised them if you obey me you'll be blessed beyond your wildest dreams if you break the covenant and disobey you'll be cursed beyond your wildest or most terrifying nightmares and that still though didn't fix the real problem with the world and the real problem with the world as we've been seeing throughout this series all the time away from Adam and Eve in the garden and we saw it so clearly with with Noah, the problem with the world is us. It's our sinful hearts. It's the fact that we want the wrong things. We desire the wrong things. We don't want God. We want to do our own thing instead of following God. And so in spite of all of God's grace and mercy to his people, in spite of these incredible promises that he gave them in the covenant, they, they kept breaking it over and over again. And so they received some of the Some of the curses and some of the the punishment that God sent on them in response to their disobedience. That's why they wandered in the desert for 40 years. But when they finally do arrive in the promised land, what we read is that they they had a good season. We read that in the book of Joshua, right? So as we finish up the, the first five books of the Bible and we turn over to the book of Joshua... We we hear that how for a time Joshua led them to be faithful to the Lord, and under Joshua's leadership, things were really good. And the book of Joshua is is, is quite a, a fantastic book because with what it really is is just a, a detailed list of all of these promises that God made to them coming true. And as you read about all these some some long detailed chapters about them taking this territory and these towns being given to these people, and all you know, it, it can kind of seem dry until you realize these are the promises coming true. This this is in detail in real life. The things that God promised to Abraham finally coming true. And so they did have a good season. Then when we turn over from the book of Joshua to the next book of the Bible, which is Judges, we read this in chapter 2, verse 7. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Things are good. But then Joshua died And his generation died. And there was a breakdown between the generations. Some people say this this is really a failure of parenting. And there's some some lessons there that we can learn from that. But we read in verse 10 of Judges chapter 2. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So we've read Deuteronomy 28. We know what God said would happen to his people if they did this. And so we're not Surprised by what we read next, verses 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And what we read here is just Deuteronomy 28 being applied in real life. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. And so begins the book of Judges, which is in many ways a real dark chapter in in the story of the Bible, and it tells about this long period of Israel's history where they would do this, they would turn aside from God, and they would suffer the curses of the covenant that God had promised, and and then they would come to their senses, they would repent, they would turn back to the Lord, they would ask him to deliver them, and just like God promised in in Deuteronomy chapter 30, that, that he would do that, he delivered them, and so they would follow God for a short time. Usually God would raise up a judge to, to lead Israel. That's why the book's called Judges. And during the lifetime of that judge, very often things were great. They would follow the Lord, but then that judge would die and the cycle would go around again. Just like when Joshua died, they would turn aside from the Lord and then th- this would happen again. And it just goes around and around and around and around like, like a merry-go-round. And as the book of Judges wears on, like y- you start to get sick of this. Like You start to say, What's going on? There's got to be a way out of this. There's got to be a solution to this endless cycle of just spinning our tires, trying to get up the hill, and we just keep sliding back down. And it's towards the end of the book that the, the author of Judges begins to suggest that there might be a reason why Israel is stuck in these cycles, and there might be a possible solution. And it comes in these words, Judges 16, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this kind of phrase comes up three more times in the book of Judges. In fact, this is how the book of Judges ends. The very last verse of the book of Judges. After detailing some just, those last chapters of Judges are just bizarre. The stuff that happens. I remember reading it as a teenager. They didn't teach me this in Sunday school. And there's good reason. It's just, it's crazy how low they sunk. And the very last verse says, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so the book of Judges leads us to suggest that if there had been a king in Israel, maybe things would have been different. Maybe a king would have led the people to follow the Lord instead of just doing whatever was right in their own eyes. Maybe a king is the way off this merry-go-round. And so with all of this in mind, we turn over. The next book is the book of Ruth, which is a really amazing story that takes place in the book of Judges, or in the, in the period of the Judges, which I'd love to preach through that book sometime. But then we turn over to 1 Samuel, where the story continues in the same period of time. And as, as 1 Samuel opens, Israel's being oppressed by a new enemy, the Philistines, who were people that arrived on the, the coast during that period of time. And... And God raises up the prophet Samuel to lead Israel for, for a time in, in this period. And under Samuel's leadership, it's, he's one of the good judges, and, and the people follow the Lord, and the Philistines are subdued, and Israel has Israel has peace for, for, for most of Samuel's lifetime. But then it happens again, right? Samuel gets old, and he's going to die. Right? The curse on Adam and Eve's sin, we return to the dust. It just it keeps grinding away and so Israel realizes they're going to need a new leader and they don't want another humble judge just like Samuel. Right? Samuel he, he, and the judges, they, they led Israel but really as sort of as a peer, as, as one of their own and Israel decides they don't want another humble judge. They want to be like the nations around them. They want a king. Now maybe you're thinking, if you've read through the book of Judges, you think, great, that, 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 that's just what they need. They, they want the right thing finally. They want a king. They need a king. This is exactly what they need, but not so fast. Because as you read through that chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 8, you realize that Israel's reasons for wanting a king were totally messed up. Right? They, they didn't want a king to help them follow God. They wanted a king to follow instead of God. God says to, stand, they've rejected me as their king. Right? God was their king, and they didn't want that. They, they, they wanted a king for all the wrong reasons. But have you noticed, have you noticed in the story of the Bible how often God uses something that someone does that is evil and God uses it for good, just like Joseph's brothers, right, selling him into Egypt? And Joseph is able to say, "You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And that's what's going on here is Israel demands a king for all the wrong reasons, for evil reasons. But God means this for good. And so he says to Samuel in 1 Samuel 8.22, he says, Obey their voice and make them a king. So we read in 1 Samuel chapter 10 that Samuel anoints Saul to become the first king of Israel. And things seem to be going good for a time. But the success, the power, the authority get to Saul's head just like they've done for so many people throughout history and so it's not long until Saul's acting just just like the other israelites he's doing whatever he wants instead of whatever god wants and and so the lord rejects Saul as king this is so important because it shows us that even though israel wanted a king for all the wrong reasons god is going to make sure that Israel gets the good king that they need instead of the bad king that they actually deserve. God could have said, hey, Saul's a failure, but hey, you you wanted a king, here you go. But no, God is caring for his people in spite of their sin. And so he says to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, how long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill up your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So Samuel goes on this stealth mission to Bethlehem. It's a very dangerous thing to anoint a new king while the old king, who has shown himself to be not the most trustworthy person, while the old king is still alive. And we know the story, right? I just love this story of the breathless little brother stumbling into the banquet hall and looking around with wide eyes, probably sweaty and stinking like sheep. And, and the Lord says to Samuel, that's him. And probably his eyes get even bigger as Samuel cracks open the horn and pours oil and running down his face, probably making little rivers in the dirt on his face. And, and it's after that that we find his name for the first time when it says the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. David. From that day forward. So begins David's long story to the throne. Again, a story I I, I want to preach through First Samuel at some point. It's just an amazing story. And we watch David's life developed. We watch him kill Goliath. We watch him fight for Saul, right? I mean, that, I mean, Talk about being in a dangerous spot, right? You've been anointed the next king and you're right there. We watch him run away from Saul as Saul tries to kill him and David fights for the Philistines for a while and then David ends up becoming almost like a Robin Hood character leading this band of outlaws out in the wilderness for years and running away from Saul and it would be 20 years From when David was first anointed by Samuel to when David began to reign as king in Jerusalem. 20 years, two decades. And it's in those 20 years that we watch David become and be who God said he was, which was a man after God's own heart. David is the king that Israel needed. Not the king they deserved, but the king that they needed. And so we come to the heart of, of, of our message this morning. Because it's not long after David begins to reign in Jerusalem and, and the Ark of the Covenant is brought into Jerusalem and he's really established his kingdom that we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, you can just pay attention to the details when you read the Bible, right? It doesn't just say, now when David, but when the king, it's highlighting that he is the king. When the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest for all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God lives in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for Yahweh is with you. So what's going on here is, is, is David's heart for the Lord. Right? Do you remember the tabernacle, right? And there's, there's a sense here in which the, the ark wasn't even in the tabernacle, it was in, in, a, in another kind of a tent. There, there's some indication of that. But as is Israel, Israel lived in tents. And so the ark of God lived in a tent, dwelt in a tent. God's presence was there. But, but now they've taken permanent residence in the land. And David's living in a nice house made of wood and cedar. And he, you know, and he says, well, this isn't right that, that I get to live in this nice house. And the ark of God is dwelling in a tent. So what's going on here is David wants to build a temple. David wants to build God a, a real house, a real temple. And Nathan, the prophet, said, go for it. Like, this is a great idea. But that night things changed, And we read this in verse 4 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build for me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved, with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me me a house of cedar? Now this passage, it doesn't explain right away why God didn't want David to build him a house. And we find out some of the reasons later. Why God said to David, no, this this is not going to be for you to to, to do for me. But the, the real surprise in this passage, and the real point is everything that comes afterwards. Because God just doesn't leave it there. He goes on to say some incredible things To David, which comes in the passage that that Wes read for us earlier. And it's in in that passage from verse 8 and following that God makes David a series of promises. And scripture later refers to this as as God's covenant with David. So let's think about these promises that we read earlier that God made to David. What's the content of them? What's going on? Well, the first main promise that God makes is that he's going to use David to give safety. And security to Israel. So we see that in verses 10 and 11. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place. And be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Okay, now, don't forget here that having safety and protection from your enemies, what was that? That was one of the blessings of the covenant. That was one of the Deuteronomy 28 promises. That as Israel obeyed the Lord, that, that he would bless them and give them safety and rest from their enemies. So in the context of this bigger story, what God is saying to David here is that God is going to use David to fulfill his covenant promises to Israel. But if that's going to happen, then that means that Israel is going to be obeying and following the Lord, right? Otherwise, they won't receive these blessings. So so essentially, what's going on here is, is God is telling us and telling David that David is going to be the king that the book of Judges prepared us for. David is going to be the king that leads Israel to follow the Lord. Because as they do that, they're going to receive these covenant blessings of peace and safety from their enemies. So David's going to be the king that's going to cause Israel to follow the Lord. The second big section here is that God promises David that instead of David building him a house, God is going to build David a house, and that's really kind of the irony here and the twist in this is God. God's essentially saying to David, "You want to build me a house, but no." Verse 11, the Lord will make you a house. So much here that we could talk about, right? We, we don't do things for God. God does things for us. That's one of the, one of the, the big lessons here. But there, there's a bit of a play on words going on here because the word house is used, being used here in two different ways. So David wanted to build God a, a, a building, right? Like a, a temple, a physical house, but God promises to build David a different kind of a house, a dynasty. A dynasty, maybe you're not familiar with that word, but, but what it means is, is that it's a family line of rulers. So these words, are, this word is used in this sense still in our world today. So again, this might be unfamiliar to some of you, but think about like the royal family in, in England. They're called the House of Windsor. Or the royal house in, in Saudi Arabia is called the House of Saud or Saud. And what that means when it's the house of this is, is, is it's a dynasty. So when, when the current king in Saudi Arabia dies, who's going to take the throne? Well, one of his sons, right? Because the House of Saud is ruling over that country. The House of Windsor is, is, is ruling over the United Kingdom. So when the queen dies, one of her children will take the throne, and that's the way that a dynasty works. And that's what God means here when he talks to David. He's saying, I'm going I'm to give you a dynasty. When you die, one of your sons is going to rule. Maybe, maybe David didn't assume this, right? Because Saul was the king and then David was the king. And maybe God was going to pick a new king each time. But, but God says, no, I'm going to give you a house. You, David, are the beginning of a dynasty. But then God goes on to make some promises here because this dynasty that he's promising to David is no ordinary dynasty. God goes on to make some promises to David that that are are just just mind-blowing. And so in verse 12, God promises to raise up David's offspring and establish his kingdom. And as you catch that word again, offspring, very, very important word in the story of the Bible. And we're going to come back to that. Then in verse 13, God promises David that this, this offspring is going to build a house for his name. So, so David's son is going to be the one that's going to build the temple instead of David. So this temple that David wanted to build, it's going to happen. How reassuring that would have been to David. But his son is going to do it. And then also in verse 13 comes one of these major huge promises in this covenant. Is that God promises that he's going to establish the throne of, of his son, forever. That word forever comes up two more times in verse 16 when the Lord says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now just think about this. God is promising to David not just a dynasty, and not just a long dynasty, but an eternal dynasty. Right? David's kingship is not just gonna be a blip on, on the radar screen of history. David's dynasty, this house that God is giving David, is gonna be a permanent fixture in the plans of God for planet Earth from this point forward. And this is, this is huge, absolutely huge. But it, it, go, it goes bigger from there because then in verse 14 and 15, God promises that he's going to have a special relationship with David's offspring. When he says this, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me. A son. Now, we got to stop and talk about this idea for a few minutes, because this, this is huge. This idea of God being a father to, to David's offspring, just, just, just a massive idea. And, and the reason we need to pause and think about this is that when most of us hear the phrase, son of God, right? When, when, when God talks here about, I'm going to be a father to him, and he's going to be my son, what do we think about? We think about Jesus, who's the son of God. And trust me, it gets there, right? This, this does get to Jesus. But we have to stop first and think, how would the first readers of this passage, how would they understand this? As they hear God say to David that you're going to have a son and I'm going to be a father to him. How would the first, the first readers who were living hundreds of years before Christ, how would they have understood this? Well, what we find as we do some research is that this idea of God being a father to, the, to a king is not a strange idea at David's, in David's moment in history. And if, when we look around at a lot of the nations in the, the ancient Near East around this time, what we find this this might surprise you, but it was actually a very common idea for them to understand that the king of a nation was considered to be the son of of the God of that nation. this is a very common idea. Many of the kings had names like son of their God. And they didn't think that that meant that that God had begotten that son. No, they they knew that this, you know, he came from his mom and his dad. They, They understood that. But what it meant is that this king was similar to that God. He had some sort of a likeness to that God and had a special relationship with him. Now, there's another big idea here that we need to piece together. And again, what we're doing here is we need to really go back and understand how did people in that time, how did they think? And so part of another kind of common set of ideas that, that was swirling around the world at that time was that they believe that, that there's all these different gods, right? And that each of these gods ruled over a different piece of land. Each god had their own turf, so to speak, and so if someone was this, considered to be the son of one of those gods, and that's what gave them the right to be the king over that chunk of land, right? So if the, the god of the Ammonites was god over that chunk of land, then if someone was the son of that god, then he got to be king of the Ammonites or Egypt or whatever it was. So there's a big connection that between being the son of a god and getting to be king over that god's turf, Okay, so you're, and hopefully you're piecing this together. So again, very common idea in the world of David's day. And so it's against this backdrop that God says, I'm going to be a father to your son. Your, your, your son is going to be the king. I'm going to have a father-son relationship with him. So just think about this. David knows the Lord, Yahweh, he's, he's not just the God over this little patch of land, right? He, he's not one among many gods. He's not just God over the land of Canaan. He's the Lord of the earth, right? He, that, that had been so proven that in the Exodus, where, and that's what God said to them, right? In, in the covenant promises that he made in Exodus 19, all the earth is mine. So, so piece this together, Right? If if you're considered the son of a God, and that makes you the king of that God's turf, then what happens if the Lord of heaven and earth takes you to be his son? Well, that means you get to be the king of his turf, which is everything. It's the whole world. David... Understands what God is saying here, that when God says to him, You're 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 gonna have a son, and I'm gonna take him to be my son, that means he gets to be king of the world. The whole world. And David shows us this in verse 19 when he's praying to God in response and thankfulness, and he says, You've spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. See that? David says, God, what you've said is, is, is for everybody. It's for, it's for mankind, not just for Israel. This is for mankind. And maybe if you're listening to this and you think, I don't know. That doesn't really make sense to me. All we have to do is turn over to the Psalms. And we see the idea come up in the Psalms over and over and over again. That they understood the son of David is king of the world. And so we see it, for example, in Psalm chapter 2. Where God is speaking to the son of David, the Davidic king. And he says, ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Right? Psalm, Psalm 2, verse 8. God says this. I'm going to make the ends of the earth your possession, son of David, king. Psalm 72 is talking about the son of David. And begins, it begins with the words, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. Psalm 72 is actually written by Solomon. David's son. And it goes on to talk about a whole bunch of things. And then it says this in verses 8 to 11. So listen to this. This is Solomon talking about the son of David, the royal son. And he says, May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down to him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. Now listen to this. May all kings... Fall down before him. All nations serve him. So, even if all that stuff about the Son of God doesn't make sense to you, I hope that makes sense that God is promising here that something they understood that the Son of David is going to be king of the world. All nations are going to bow down and serve him. And so at this point, we need to pause and ask, does any of this sound familiar to you? Especially If you've been with us through this series and you've, you've heard some of the big pieces in the story up to now, a king who rules over the whole world as God's representative, does that sound familiar to you at all? Doesn't that sound like Adam? Doesn't that remind us of the promises God made to Abraham and then to Israel it's connecting up, isn't it, to the main story? And then we picture gets even clearer when we remember that David was not just a king. He was David was also a prophet. Right? And scripture is very clear about that. And then we read Psalm 110, verse 4, and it speaks about David's son as being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So you put these pieces together, okay? Put, 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 put all these puzzle pieces together. And you got the idea that the son of David, prophet, priest, and king... Ruling over the whole world as God's representative. And let's go further, because there's more pieces we need to add to this puzzle. Because we remember this really important word, offspring, that God used with David. And he says, I will raise up your offspring. And we remember, okay, this is a huge word because it connects us up to the offspring that God promised to Abraham. Abraham that would be the one that would bless the whole world. And we saw how that was the same person as the offspring that God promised that would come from Eve, who would be the one that would crush the serpent. And so what it sounds like, if we're putting this together, is that the son of David that that God is promising here is the one, the one that we've been looking for. And all of this gets confirmed for us if we go back to Psalm 72, I encourage you to read in its entirety later on. Psalm 72 is, remember, it's continuing to describe the Davidic king, the son of David, who rules over all of the nations. And then in verse 17, Psalm 72, verse 17, it says this. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. Now listen to these words and think about everything we've heard in this series up till now. May people... Be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. That is a direct reference to God's promise to Abraham about his offspring when he says, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. This is the one. The son of David is the offspring. The offspring of David, the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of Eve. The prophet, priest, and king who rules over the whole world as God's representative. Do you see how the whole storyline of the Bible has converged and focused its attention on one person? All of these previous covenants with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Israel, they all come to a focal point and narrow down on this one person, the offspring of David, who is also the offspring of Abraham, who is also the offspring of Eve, the one who will bring blessing to the nations as he rules this world as God's representative. So what this means is that the son of David is the main character of the story of the Bible. This is it. This is him, right? This promise that God makes to David brings everything together and shows us this main character of the story, who he is. But does it? Who is the offspring of David? Who is is this talking about? I mean, the the language of father and son could just be talking about God sort of adopting one of David's sons to be his son. It, It could mean different things. And if we're reading the story for the first time, and we kept reading through the rest of 2 Samuel, and then, into the book of Kings, we'd be tempted to think that this son of David was Solomon. Right? David had a son, David had Solomon. And a lot of the things that God says here did come true for Solomon. Right? Solomon did have his throne established. Solomon, Solomon, here, this is a big one. Solomon finally expanded Israel's empire out to the area that God had originally promised to Abraham, right? When God said from, from this part to this part, Solomon finally actually accomplished that. see that in 1 Kings 4. Solomon did build the temple, just like God promised. God's glory came and filled the temple. And as we keep reading, we read about the, the Queen of Sheba coming to find Solomon and seek his wisdom. And we read about Solomon's reach expanding further and further, and him sending ships all around the world, and... And we read about the prosperity that he brought to to Israel and the peace that they had. And it almost sounds like the Garden of Eden. And we might be thinking as we read this, if we're reading it for the first time, that Solomon is the one that we've been waiting for. But then you get a kick in the gut because 1 Kings 11 tells us that after all of this, Solomon turned aside from the Lord and began to worship other gods, There's a whole sermon in there because it was, came down to women. He married the wrong, not just woman, but wom- women. Solomon's heart was led astray by lust. And when I say it came down to women, I'm not blaming women on what happened. It was Solomon marrying the wrong women and allowing them to turn his heart away from the Lord. He, he broke God's law in, in, in marrying women who worshipped other gods instead of marrying faith, a faithful woman who worshipped the Lord. And so his heart was turned aside by all of his wives and all these curses started to come into effect and suddenly you have enemies springing up against Solomon and his empire starts to crumble. And we realize as we step back that even at the peak of his power, Solomon wasn't king of the whole world. And then Solomon died and God took away most of the kingdom and The house of David never recovered again. Solomon is a likely candidate, but he failed us just like everybody else has. Solomon failed us just like Adam failed us. Solomon failed us just like Noah failed us. Solomon failed just like Moses and Israel failed us. Solomon gave us a little picture. Of the kind of king that we're looking for, the kind of kingdom that he's going to bring. And it was just a flash and it was gone. And then the Babylonians came, destroyed Jerusalem, and David's throne sat empty. And the promise that God made to David, this covenant, is still on the books, waiting to be fulfilled as God's people waited and waited and waited. And that's really where we're going to pick up next week. Next week we're going to talk about the exile, and hear the kinds of things that the prophets wrote about and spoke about during that time. So in some ways, some ways this is kind of part one of two. Next week is going to pick up to be continued and 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 carry on from where we left from where we're leaving off right here today. But but in terms of what we can take home this week, what 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 this kind of says and does for us. One, very obviously, is that Solomon and his failure, just like Noah and his failure, just like Adam and his failure, he shows us what kind of a king we really need. He's setting the stage. He's preparing the way. He's carving out the mold that is going to be filled by the one who is going to come. But I want us to see ourselves in this story this morning, and even just in some of the elements of David's story I want us to realize this morning how much we need a king. See, most of the time when we tell the story of David, we see ourselves in the story. Who are we? Well, we're David, right? That's what was taught to me so many times as a young kid. Look, David killed Goliath. You can do whatever you, God wants you to do. You know, go fight your giants, right? Or that those kind of ideas. We kind of step into David's spot in the story and think, yeah, that's me. But really, some of that might be true. But who are we in the story? If we were to step into the story, who are we? We're not, most of us, all of us, we're not David. We're the people of Israel. We're the sheep without a shepherd that need a king. Because otherwise, we just do whatever seems right in our own eyes, and it's not pretty. We need someone to stand up and fight for us. We need someone to lead us. We need someone to show us how to follow the Lord. We need someone to rescue us from ourselves. We need a king. We need the son of David. And without giving away the rest of the series here, I'm not going to surprise anyone here when I give us the sneak peek that we all know is coming, that we, we know who the son of David is. And I just, want, I just want to ask us this morning, do you know Jesus as your king? Like really, like, like your king. Like what he says, you do without talking back and asking questions. You don't quibble, you don't argue, you don't negotiate. You say, yes, sir, and you do it. Do you obey Jesus that way? Does he have your allegiance, your full allegiance, your absolute unconditional allegiance? Is Jesus your king? Jesus is the king. He's the son of David. He's reigning now at his father's right hand, like we sang about. And we know, like we're going to sing in just a minute here, that he shall reign here on the earth, right? He's, he's going to take up a real throne in a real new Jerusalem, and he's really going to reign here on earth. And all of God's promises are going to be fulfilled in him. And we're going to come back December 16 and spend a whole morning going back and and, and showing in detail that Jesus is the son of David and you know, just if, if you want anticipation of that, read through one of the Gospels and just highlight every time you see the phrase, Son of David. It's just all over the place, and it's so amazing. But before then, just a sneak peek this morning have you bowed your knee to the Son of David? Is Jesus your King? Or are you still doing whatever seems right in your own eyes? Because, like we're going to sing here, he's going to reign, and that's only good news if you've bowed your knee to him and if he's your King. And the amazing truth is that the king against whom we've all committed treason is the same king who took the punishment for that treason upon himself and offers us forgiveness in his name. There's an, am- there's an amnesty available to us for all of our treason against the king. And it's ours for the taking today. Complete and absolute forgiveness for all of our rebellion all of our wandering and doing our own thing because the king paid for our treason against himself with his own blood. Isn't that amazing? This isn't just the biggest story ever told. This is the best story ever told. You can do that today. You can bow your knee to Jesus as the king. And maybe you've done that and you understand that every week we're tempted to get off of our knee, right? or to start bowing down to other things instead. So I just want to invite us this morning to to recognize Christ, the son of David, as our king. Whatever that means for you this week, that you would make that your reality. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the biggest story ever told. Thank you for the way that this story so clearly focuses in all of our expectation on a person, a son. Oh Lord, in these moments we taste the longing of your people for centuries waiting for the birth of the one. God, help us to taste some of that longing and and in so doing to love you, Lord Jesus, more than we have before. And Jesus, this morning, I pray that you'd help us to be faithful and loyal to you as our king. We need you, Lord. Apart from you, we're sheep without a shepherd. We're wandering, we're lost, we're hopeless, we're broken. So, Lord, would you... Find us this morning in submission to you. Let your word be absolute, have absolute authority over every part of our lives. May we obey you, Lord, without reservation. Lord, help us to be people of the kingdom, people of the king in every way. And I ask this in Jesus' name.